Hello and welcome to Rock and Roll Politics, the weekly podcast with me, Steve Richards. Thank you so much for tuning in wherever you are in the UK and indeed from around the world. As usual, we have a lot to cram in in our time together. To come, some brilliant questions. I'm going to reflect on whether Boris Johnson will enjoy what became known as the Falklands factor, a bounce arising from a war, something that uh, is alleged to have happened to Margaret Thatcher with the Falklands. And it's a chance, actually, to look at some of the mythologies around the Falklands and, indeed, war. And then there's some brilliant questions from all of you, inevitably, uh, about Ukraine, but other topics, too. There's a lot about tuition fees. There's a kind of big story lurking under there. It's not even near the top of the agenda when politics is normal, and it certainly isn't normal at the moment. Well, it hasn't been normal for years, but you know what I mean when there's a domestic focus. But there's a kind of lot going on around that issue. Before my reflections, uh, just a couple of notices. Rock and Roll Politics is live at King's Place on Thursday and streaming live too. So do uh, join us, hopefully at King's Place, where this is what I'm going to do, unless there are big changes. Obviously, things can change on the night and often do, which sort of heightens the sense of drama. What I thought I would do is look at, see, I think with this uh, nightmare in Ukraine, you know, Blair said after September the 11th, the kaleidoscape, the kaleidoscape, the kaleidoscope has changed. And he illustrated in a speech at the Labour Party conference soon after September the 11th, the degree to which he thought the attack on the United States had changed everything. And It did in terms of its immediate consequences. We know what they were, Afghanistan, Iraq, and so on. But in many ways, it didn't. This is doing so. And what I thought I would do at King's Place, and I hope as many of you as possible would join me, because we need, I need some guidance here, is just to look, to give an example of the way things have changed, the assumptions and orthodoxies that were in place just in the UK a few weeks ago. And take as a sort of starting point the policy announcements that those close to Boris Johnson thought would save him when his premiership appeared to be doomed because of Partygate. And uh, remember what some of them were? The army was going to be brought in to protect the borders in the UK. The BBC was going to be almost scrapped with the ending of the licence fee, certainly in its recognisable current form. They were two of the sort of red meat policy items. And now reflect. Europe was being pushed into this sort of far off distant place. The Pacific was where UK, global Britain was going. Reflect on that. So I'm going to do that in the, the first half, hopefully with help from all of you. And then I thought I would move on to something very interesting that Michael Gove has been reflecting on in recent days, which is the degree to which there are parallels in terms of the seismic economic shock with the quadrupling of oil prices in the early 1970s under the Heath government. That was the big moment 
in the 1970s, far more significant, although of course they are all interconnected with the industrial strife and the miners' strike and so on. And the way Heath responded was fascinating and illuminating. And I think there are some parallels in the kind of confused responses on the economic front with the confused and bewildered responses of the Heath government. That's what we're going to be looking at on Thursday night. And tickets are available on the King's Place website or in the blurb. If you tap one of the links uh, in the blurb for this podcast, you can get tickets. These are things I think we can explore and place into context. I mean, I think we're all or nearly all of us are ill-equipped to make kind of... I, I saw an interview with Michael Gove on Sunday where he said, look, You can ask me a lot of things, but please don't ask me about the military implications, if Russia does this, if Putin does that. That is not my area of expertise. It's certainly not my area of expertise either. But these other areas, I think, are ones which we can reflect on. History is moving at high speed at the moment. As I say, I think at a higher speed than after September the 11th. So that's that. Second notice, thank you so much, those who've joined the new Patreon version of Rock and Roll Politics. Um, Those who have will have got the kind of bonus podcast. There's now two election bonus podcasts out there, February 74 uh, and 1983. uh, The 1980, both elections actually, curiously overlooked and understated in their profound significance and cinematic qualities. So do subscribe if you can. But enough of all of that. Let's now reflect on, again, an area which is really interesting, because what happens with any conflict is a kind of mythology forms very, very quickly. Number 10, a briefing at the moment with some success, that for Johnson, this current dark nightmare is a Falklands moment, where he emerges as a world leader, of um, weight and significance and influence in the way that Thatcher emerged apparently after the Falklands War as a kind of war hero, almost, a figure of such weightiness that it transformed British politics and propelled her to victory in 1983. Now, before I reflect on why I don't think the Falklands factor applies now, Let's have a look at what did really happen in 1982, because, as I say, so many mythologies have arisen from it, including that this was the key moment which propelled Margaret Thatcher to that landslide victory in 1983, the election I reflect on in that Patreon bonus podcast this month. There's going to be another election to reflect on next month. I'm in agonies, by the way, about which one to choose, because so many good arguments are being texted or emailed to me about what that should be. The kind of Falklands era looks like, of course, an innocent world compared with the horrors now, Uh, you know, the potential use of chemical weapons and all the other stuff going on at the moment. Uh, and indeed, nuclear escal- escalation being speculated about. It, it looks like, you know, this island full of, was it penguins? Uh, really does look like some sort of uh, innocent age. But there are some parallels once you accept that one is an epic horror and one is a minor one. One of which is this. 
The invasion of the Falklands took place because the Argentinian junta, the fascist dictatorship, detected weakness. The British obsessed at the time with spending cuts and uh, an assumption that all government spending almost was a kind of sinful recklessness. They noted that the government had been watering down the defences around the Falkland Islands, and therefore they went for it. And and this was the case. It wasn't just a perception. Nicholas Ridley, the Foreign Office Minister then, a great ally of Margaret Thatcher's and a great believer in limiting the role of the state, had made quite clear that defence spending was going to be addressed, and part of that was a watering down of the defences around the Falkland Islands. And when that happened, detecting weakness, the Argentinian dictatorship invaded. And that clearly is part of what has happened in recent weeks. Putin detected weakness in the United States uh, with Biden and, for example, the wholly cack-handed withdrawal from Afghanistan. He detected weakness in Europe, not least, by the way, with Brexit, exposing a vulnerability to a sort of coordinated response to anything from within the European Union. It's worth reflecting again and again that the two world leaders who supported Brexit were Trump and Putin. Suddenly, Brexit again comes back into view because of this current conflict. More of that on Thursday. Back to the Falklands. So they detected a weakness and they invaded. And there was then a dramatic summoning of the House of Commons on a Saturday very rare for the House of Commons to meet on a Saturday, and they did. And this is where uh, it becomes very interesting, because part of the mythology of the Falklands is that it showed the steely courage of Margaret Thatcher in deciding to send out the task force and to defeat the Argentinian dictatorship through this means, rather than some attempt at diplomacy. And this was hailed at the time and ever since as an act of epic political courage. Here is the truth when you step back. It wasn't about courage. It wasn't about steeliness. She had no choice but to act in the way that she did. Uh, The only other option for her was to resign. And she wasn't going to do that, having just been elected as a prime minister in 1979. And here's why. In that debate, there was some, obviously from Labour MPs, concern expressed about the way the Falklands had become vulnerable as a result of defence cuts. But from Michael Foote, the then Labour leader of the opposition, full support for the task force setting sail and uh, preparing, therefore, for a naval military solution to the invasion, uh, rather than being dependent on diplomatic means. Michael Foote, people, some people were surprised by Foote's speech in that debate, but it was absolutely consistent with Foote in the late 1930s. He famously wrote with others, uh, The Guilty Men, 
those who appeased Hitler, and he saw parallels that uh, fascist dictatorship was acting in a way that had to be challenged militarily if necessary. But in a way, although that was interesting, and by the way, Foote got no electoral credit for it, those who say Keir Starmer is doing well in relation to the horrors in Ukraine don't expect him to get sort of political benefit from it. Uh, Foot got none in the Falklands. But the real contribution that is worth looking at again came from Enoch Powell, an MP who Thatcher revered on many levels. And Foote spoke, and the conclusion of his speech was this. The Prime Minister, shortly, this is my impersonation of Enoch Powell, by the way, haven't gone crazy. I'm sorry it isn't Enoch Powell, um, but this is my impersonation. It's as close as I'm going to get. I've got a cold, by the way. So, you know, it's not brilliant. The Prime Minister, shortly after she came into office, received a sobriquet as the Iron Lady. It arose in the context of remarks which she made about defence against the Soviet Union and its allies. But there was no reason to suppose that the Right Honourable Lady did not welcome and indeed take pride in that description. In the next week or two, this House, the Nation, and the Right Honourable Lady herself will learn of what metal she is made. Now, Thatcher would have sat there and heard that and have been in no doubt that the only route available to her was the military one. That here was a test of her metal. And therefore, all talk, it's, it's, it's like so many words in British politics, utterly misleading. All talk of great political courage or steeliness are just utterly deceptive. It, it, it's not about that. There was only that route available to her or resignation. And so the task force set sail. And, of course, in the end, uh, the Falklands were recovered. And when you step back, I'm afraid there was, I'm afraid because it's true of Russia and Ukraine, there was only really going to be one outcome, which, after some casualties, a British military victory or naval victory. Britain, even then, was one of the bigger naval forces in the world, and Argentina was not. And that bigger naval force was going to win in the same way, I'm afraid, in the end, if Putin is determined to take Ukraine, even if it means destroying it, he can do so because he has the might to do it. And by the way, in parenthesis, I would just pose this question. When we in the West applaud the resistance of UK, Ukraine, and of course it is heroic. I do wonder at times, and it's a sort of existential reflection, uh, whether it is preferable if the choice is being slaughtered in the worst possible way, or living for a time under Russian occupation, if that is going to be the end result. result. There was a good piece by uh, Matthew Paris in the Times on Saturday, and he posed the question, 
what would we do in those circumstances? It really does make you reflect on these matters, again, in a somewhat existential way. I think I would uh, get the hell out or accept occupation rather than oblivion in the most horrendous way for all of us lot, um, you know, living in a town or a city. Uh, but, um, you know, that's, uh, I know other people say, yeah, but they're resisting brilliantly and, and they would have done without the support of, you know, the, the sanctions and the applauding and the moral support and so on. Yeah, that is the case. But, um, Oh, I don't know. It's just so horrendous. But anyway, back to the Falklands. So Thatcher won. Uh, There's no doubt it changed her. She began to see herself in a more imperious manner as a result of a victory that was always going to happen. She started referring to uh, Churchill as Winston. By the way, the impact of Churchill is extraordinary and hovers over every British prime minister. Uh, she didn't know Churchill personally, but he became Winston. And she started making famously parallels with internal matters. You know, she said uh, about the miners, uh, we've defeated the enemy without, we'll defeat the enemy from within. Uh, a very characteristically crude a parallel. Um, there were victory celebrations where she was the dominant regal figure. And Blair noted, uh, and it had a big impact on Blair, he fought the next by-election after the Falklands uh, in Beaconsfield. And he noted the degree to which voters there admired Thatcher as a war leader. There were all kinds of consequences, as there always are. But here is the twist. The key to Thatcher's victory in 1983 was not the Falklands War. It was the formal schism within the main opposition, the Labour Party, which happened before the Falklands War in 1981, when the SDP was formed. That's when her route to victory in 83 was guaranteed. Uh, if you have a formal opposition split, uh, and, you know, split in an absolutely kind of rigid way with the formation of a new party the governing party of the right are going to win. And she kind of knew that, really. That's when she became brave, not after the Falklands domestically, but after the the SDP-Labour split. That's when she brought the likes of Norman Tebbit into the uh, cabinet in September 1981, the most important reshuffle of her career. And that's when she purged her cabinet of the so-called wets who opposed her economic policies. Again, uh, a very big moment in her career. And that was before the Falklands. So the Falklands did change her. It gave voters to some extent, or some voters, a view of her as this kind of Churchillian figure. But that's not won her the election. It was the, the split. And as I say, in terms of courage, she had no option but to fight that war. It wasn't courageous. Uh, it wasn't weak either. These terms that are bandied about in terms of leadership are nearly always misplaced. And now to look at Boris Johnson. There are really no parallels with the Falklands. That was very much a personal crusade or portrayed as such. But as I say, it was a crusade of which she had no choice but to go about and try and 
get those islands back. Um, this is far more complex and multi-layered, involving every world leader of significance. And also, patterns are continuing uh, in the Johnson government that were in place before the war began. In a way, with Thatcher too, the sort of characteristically, look at me, I'm an iron lady, was actually not a leap with the immediate past, but uh, a constant in her projection of herself and increasingly the view of herself. So we see with the Johnson government the same pattern of chaos in relation to the war that was in place before. And it is inevitable because prime ministers don't really change their habits. So Britain has been slow in particular to take the Ukrainian uh, refugees. And I suspect this is a combination of Pretty Patel misreading the public mood and Johnson, in a way, wholly incapable of his bandwidth is very narrow. There has been clearly a focus in number 10 at the kind of press conferences with world leaders um, because remember, part of this for them is to boost Johnson and make it impossible for him to be removed as prime minister. So there's been a lot of focus on that side of things. But therefore, I think he probably had given little reflection on the side of it that has now become such a big story, the need for refugees to have easy access to countries across Europe, including the UK. And then when he read in the Mail and the Spectator their alarm and shame at UK policy, his bandwidth ex extended to take it in. And now belatedly, they're, they're, they're trying to deal with it. And, you know, this is very uh, familiar for those of us who have followed this government. So in policy terms, you can still see the chaos of implementation and the same preoccupation with the public face of policy. You know, here am I with, uh, who am I with today? Uh, Trudeau with Canada and all the uh, There's all of that. But in terms of implementation, uh, uh, still quite a lot of erratic stuff. And anyway, this is such a dark nightmare of global significance that the key players, China, the US, the EU are players that are going to have a pivotal role in all of this. Whereas that Falklands thing really was the UK versus the Argentinian dictatorship at the time. And although, of course, there were many humiliations en route before the victory, I mean, the US did not come in behind Thatcher. You know, there that friendship with Reagan and he equivocated because he was also pretty close to the Argentinian junta at the time. So, yeah, I mean, British foreign policy, it, 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 is, it is so precarious. But I don't think there will be a Falklands factor in, in this because there can't be. It is a wholly different situation and demanding levels of focus from a range of leaders tormented by, understandably, the huge risks involved as they make each of their uh, moves. So, yeah, number 10 might be briefing a Falklands factor. It's not going to be like that. 
Okay, thank you for listening to that. As I say, we're going to reflect more on Thursday night at King's Place with your guidance, please. So do do come along. Now, let's go, if it's all right with all of you, to your questions. There have been fantastic questions on a whole range of topics, as I say. I'm going to read a few of them out now. Here we are. Okay. Yeah. Oh, right. We're going to begin in Australia from Simon Duffin. Used to be based here, now lives in Australia. Simon Duffin says, back to writing to you from Australia as the country gears up for the next federal election. And my first time voting here. Oh, you get a vote. Right. Okay. Now, Simon has been struck by the number of independent candidates that have uh, uh, standing in the Australian election in May. And he wonders whether that is the best way to challenge certain uh, cabinet ministers at the next election here, Sunak, Patel, Truss, uh, and even uh, Johnson. But uh, he doesn't really see the same cultural focus on independent candidates. He wonders about the likes of Deborah Meaden of The Apprentice fame, Chris Whitty, etc., etc., the Conservatives might even thank us for the idea, he suggests, and then uh, step up Lee Rowley as the new <laughs> leader of the Conservatives, having been challenged by a range of parties and independents. And, of course, there is the example of Martin Bell in 1997. Uh, the other parties stood down, giving Martin Bell a clear run against Neil Hamilton uh, in that constituency in the 97 election, uh, and Martin Bell won. Uh, Simon, I really don't agree with you about this. I think independents are almost anti-politics because if you stand just on being who you are, you are denying really that the essence of politics is an ideological battle. And unlike Putin, who uses force to prevail, in democratic politics, you use ideas and language that arise from those ideas in an attempt to win or lose. And if you have just this um, proliferation of celebrities, really, um, you deny that fundamental dimension to politics. So I'm not a fan of independence, Simon, um, and I'll be interested to see how that works in Australia, where there are huge ideological debates taking place about climate change and the running of the economy inevitably, etc., etc., Um, But thank you for, I love that this is the great stuff about our global audience. You get new dimensions all the time. Dominica from France, our French correspondent and others, uh, you know, from Portugal, Brussels, we get all kinds of different dimensions. So, um, oh yeah, good time to give you the address for emails, steverick14 at icloud.com, steverick14 at icloud.com. Thank you, Simon. Uh, Noah Keat says, uh, amongst the continuing uh, horror of the war in Ukraine, a lot of domestic discussion has turned to the greater help the UK should be providing refugees. Given this podcast is brilliantly built around context, I thank you, Noah. Yeah, 
context, another of my favourite words. On the Patreon, you get a mug uh, with consequences, a cup of consequences. I think we should have a cup of contexts. Um, I wonder if you could discuss how the public conversation around refugees today compared to the 1990s during the Balkans War. That's very interesting. There, there were some similarities in that um, the bulk of the uh, refugees moved to countries immediately close to their borders. But the UK did take in quite a lot. And rather like the British government now, the key was the relationship with local authorities and the funding for them and so on. Um, And um, it was quite interesting that um, there were a lot of studies done about some of those who came to the UK uh, arising from the terrible. And it was the Balkan Wars were pretty damn bleak they were fairly traumatized coming here and wanted to get back and so on when it was possible to do so but the uk government i mean it was so they were so central to those wars certainly belatedly they quite quickly had in place a mechanism for allowing uh, people in the context was of course very different then britain part of the european union and uh, so on the, the, we keep coming back to the european union in this uh, current situation now as i said at the beginning there's a i got getting a lot of emails about tuition fees annie writes i'm a loyal listener who almost always agree with what you say ah thank you Uh, kind of reassuring a lot don't annie you know she doesn't agree with me on this although i think we might agree in the end i was educated at sheffield poly graduating in 1983 yeah around about the same time i graduated annie Uh, on co-funding you said it would improve what you got at york my kids are both on year one spending eighteen thousand each they say and, and annie says they're not getting a good deal at all whereas she Uh, when she was at Sheffield, uh, had great lectures and seminars. I think our young people are being horribly ripped off by universities at the moment. Yeah, now, this is important, Annie, because I agree that some people, you you had a great time at Sheffield. I, I didn't. I thought York was really poor. And I've always thought that if students had more leverage in the period I was there, which was sounds like roughly the time you were in Sheffield, they might have got a better deal, uh, you know, my kind of thing, a timetable, one seminar a week, you know, that kind of thing. And the, uh, someone said, oh, that's ample, you know, one seminar a week. It wasn't. But there's no guarantee of that. And you are absolutely right that some universities know that they're going to get this money coming in. Um, it, they've got a captive audience and are as complacent as ever. I certainly think it's a ripoff at that level. But I don't, as a matter of principle, think co-payments are a bad thing. It's the level they're set at. Because in theory, at least, it does give students some leverage. They could walk away with their contributions, completely mucking up some complacent university or whatever. So, uh, yeah, it's it's the level. So I don't know what that should be, maybe 3,000 or something. I don't know. That's what it was at the beginning. And then the coalition government came in and put it up straight away to 9,000. Talking of which, Alan Lehman corrects my mathematics here. Some friends of mine have joined in this debate as well. It's not a debate. I'm wrong. He says that uh, you can certainly say that tuition fees were trebled from 3,000 to 9,000. 
but the increase was 6K, which is 200% of 3K. I think I said because it was trebled, it was a 300% increase. Uh, I'm now convinced I'm wholly wrong about that. Anyway, Alan, and I know you are, uh, you know, uh, are very involved with the Lib Dems. I think it was a terrible mistake to treble them. And I think we are allowed to say trebled even if that's 200% increase, one hell of an increase. Thank you, Alan, for uh, convincing me that I need to go on a mathematics course fairly quickly. Uh, Sean Coldstone, hope you're well. I've been reading an interesting article. I'm fine, by the way, Sean. I've got a bit of a cold, uh, but nothing more than that. I've just been reading an interesting article in the New Statesman that Tony Blair wishes to advise the next Labour government. Bizarrely, he was asked if he would consider serving a fourth term as Prime Minister. I think at times in conversations with his mate Andrew Adonis, they have talked about that. Um, But I think even Andrew now accepts that this is not a route that is remotely feasible. Do you think this would improve the party's fortune? It seems to be unusual that there is still much discussion about Tony Blair so long after leaving office, but perhaps that's inevitable given Labour's woeful record at winning elections. Perhaps there's a lesson from the Conservatives and they never seem to debate whether a Tory MP was a good leader, even those who strongly divide opinion. Yeah, I think... um, uh, Keir Starmer, in many ways, is unlucky to have, you know, someone like uh, Tony Blair, who resigned at such a young age, relatively, as Prime Minister, uh, still there making speeches, giving advice, um, because any Labour leader from opposition who wants to win has to appear as if he or she, uh, he, Uh, at the moment, owns the future. And the future cannot be about the past. Tony Blair didn't go around sort of asking Jim Callaghan for advice. He asked Roy Jenkins, but only because he wanted, I think, largely to symbolise the sort of link with the um, Liberal Democrats of which uh, Roy Jenkins was part. He didn't follow a lot of Jenkins' advice, actually, in the end. He certainly didn't consult Jim Callaghan, Tony Blair didn't bring in the likes of, I don't know, Joe Haynes or people who worked for Harold Wilson. Uh, He brought Bernard Donoghue in, but, you know, in a relatively minor role, Donoghue was an advisor to Wilson and Callaghan. And yet there he is saying, yeah, he'd like to advise Keir Starmer in in all the next Labour government and so on. Now, I don't blame Tony Blair. He's relatively young. He's absolutely absorbed by politics as he has ever been. But I think it's more tricky for a Labour leader than useful to have a figure around. And I think your reason for it is broadly true. He won elections. Labour are very good at losing elections. And that does give a winner a degree of authority when Labour are surrounded by so many who lost elections. Um, But you are also right that Tories are never framed in the same light. You look at all the commentary on Johnson. It's never, oh, is he Cameron? Is he Thatcher? Is he this? Is he that? With Cameron, everybody willingly fell for his own self-described portrayal as a modernizer and all this kind of thing. Uh, in, in fact, his economic policies were sort of turbocharged Thatcherism to some extent. And I noticed he gave an interview the other day where he um, advocated tax cuts. Now, he didn't go on to explain how you then pay for the shortfall in the NHS, etc. It is just Labour leaders who are framed by previous Labour leaders. And uh, Keir Starmer won't win until he escapes the framing. You know, all this, is he Ed Miliband? Is he Tony Blair? He needs to escape 
such framing if he wants to have a chance of claiming to seize the future. Okay, thank you, Sean. Steve Lucas from Brighton. Uh, just finished reading the Prime Ministers, which I enjoyed very much. Now you need to move on to the Prime Ministers we never had. Though you cast light on the matter, I'm still puzzled how Labour failed to convey the significance of the 2008 financial crash and Gordon Brown's role in rescuing the global economy at the 2010 election. Um, perhaps I'll never come to terms with this. Yeah, now th- it's an interesting point, Steve. That 2010 election is fascinating because if you look back, even now some Tories admit that Brown's response to 2008 was impressive. And yet at 2010, uh, it was seen as a massive electoral liability. And indeed, in true Labour style, if you remember, during and after the financial crash, there were several attempted coups against Brown, even though he was by far the best qualified after all those years as Chancellor to respond to the financial crash. And the answer is, and this is something Labour has got to learn, Brown and others did not find the language to counter George Osborne's uh, kind of brilliant use of everyday imagery. You know, uh, don't trust those who maxed out the credit card. Don't give the keys to those that crashed the car. And Tories are much better at using accessible language to make their case. Uh, Labour rarely does it. And uh, Gordon Brown never found a way of explaining the nature of that crash and his response in a way that was accessible and credible. It's difficult. He had the media against him. You look back at the 2010 campaign and there was no language to counter those uh, populist points from uh, George Osborne in particular. Uh, okay, on to Craig Finney. Um, he says, Steve, I'm new to the podcast, which I enjoy very much. Welcome, uh, Craig. Uh, here on the banks of the r- wonderful River Kelvin in Glasgow. I usually listen while supposed to be working, but keep that under your hat. I won't tell anyone, Kelvin. But thank you for uh, tuning in. Uh, now, he says, there must be other listeners beside myself who would like to hear more about your take on what's happening here in Scotland. It seems to be generally accepted that with a skilled and knowledgeable population, excellent educational institutions and rich natural resources, that Scotland is well equipped to survive and even thrive as a small independent country in the 21st century. So when you say, as you did recently, that in your opinion, independence would be harmful to us north of the border, were you thinking in short-term economic terms or alluding to something more profound? Uh, Craig, uh, not just in the short term, I think in the longer term too. And, and you, just, you said it yourself, really, to be a small independent country. I've said before, you know, uh, uh, Nicola Sturgeon, uh, one of the most articulate politicians in the UK at the moment. But get her on this, you know, very powerful, one of the best persuaders about the problems with Brexit and the need for borders and trade barriers and all the rest of it. And yet when it comes to independence, she can't really explain where the border will be and why the border is such a good idea and the currency and all the other things and smallness in the context of what's happening in Ukraine, I think raises issues as well. You can see how suddenly countries are brought brought together with common challenges. 
uh, how you respond, the energy crisis, the food crisis, and those who are part of a larger entity, the United States, the European Union, are stronger, I think, being part of a sort of wider entity. Um, so those are some a few thoughts, Craig. But I mean, you know, I've promised an electoral reform special one of these days when I've, you know, uh, taken enough medicine to get ready for it. Well, we should do one on independence as well, uh, Craig. Uh, but thank you very much. Enjoy those. I hope you're walking along the river listening, Craig, and disagreeing with me. Kathy Mears says the war in Ukraine must provide, in some sense, the long grass that Boris was jumping johnson was hoping for in terms of the gray report it seems to be so kathy do you think this will be balanced by the general fury about his and pretty patel's terrible mismanagement of the refugee crisis and kathy says hope to see you live on march 17th yeah do come along kathy we've got a lot to get through on that night I think on both you are right. Clearly, if the Gray report comes out in the next few days after the police investigation, uh, the Tories aren't going to move against Johnson as Putin uh, makes life hell in Ukraine and uh, with all the wider security implications. But I think you are also right, as I said in my kind of preamble, that the chaos of policy implementation that has been a feature of the Johnson government since the beginning in July 2019, is still in place now. And I think Tory MPs are noticing. I don't see many of them saying, oh, this is a Falklands moment. As I say, there's a slight mythology around the Falklands moment. But I don't think they are, and that's one example. And and, and Patel has been coming under a lot of criticism from Tory MPs, to the point where you wonder whether she might actually have to go as Home Secretary. Thank you, Cathy. Harriet Anderson wonders why uh, Keir Starmer went on energy bills at Prime Minister's Questions rather than what was then still the uh, chaotic response in the UK to the Ukrainian refugee crisis. Yeah, I think you're, I know what you're implying, that he's been, Keir Starmer, too cautious uh, in his response to uh, the government's uh, uh, kind of wholly misreading of the UK in vis-a-vis the refugee crisis, uh, perhaps, you know, concerned that uh, if he appeared uh, more relaxed than the government over people coming in, it's that whole red wall thing, borders, and so on. Um, but I, uh, so, so Labour have been almost paralysed with fear through the kind of focus group culture, uh, which does just lead to paralysis. Although they've also been absolutely clear uh, that they supported a speeding up of this whole process for some time. That he could have gone on that and perhaps should have gone on that. But don't underestimate, uh, Harriet, the massive cost of living crisis that is about to erupt now i'm not saying that is central to our concerns we're in a global crisis at the moment of terrifying proportions um but you know the the energy some people will not be able to pay their energy bills and what happens then is is going to be one of the big big sub themes and i'm going to be exploring that as part of the king's place show on thursday night so don't know where you are harriet but if you can't get to it you can watch on the stream and join in via that i'll be interested in your take i think it was valid for him to go on that frankly but i agree with you i detected hyper caution in labor's response to britain's sluggish 
dealing with the refugee crisis. Venetia Kane. Oh, on energy prices too. They're going to be a real problem. But we are uh, at war. Our parents and grandparents and great-grandparents and great-great-grandparents, depending on one's age, put up with shortages of all kinds in the Second World War, and we must be prepared to do so as well. Some of us will be able to absorb increased prices with not too much hardship. Others will have great difficulty and even find it impossible. The government must step in and help such people. Uh, and uh, yeah, and this is was well, it's going to be a. Th- I'm sorry to push it again. But it is going to be a theme on Thursday night because will Rishi Sunak, this figure who instinctively is against government intervention, intervene uh, again on a scale required? And this was a, a dilemma for the Heath government in the 70s as well, as I hope to explore on Thursday, unless other things erupt that are more urgently <laughs> required to contextualise, to use our favourite word, context. She says, my actual question is, when Boris Johnson eventually goes, uh, however and whenever that may be, how about Ben Wallace as the next Prime Minister on the assumption that it will be a Tory? He does seem to be a rather more sober and sensible person than the rest of the bunch. He that's what a lot of people are saying, including a lot of non-Tories. He hasn't been wholly blemish-free, uh, but he does seem composed and measured and across the detail, which is uh, not characteristics that you see across this current cabinet and indeed in number 10. I'd be surprised if he's even a candidate for Nisha, but it all depends when that is. Uh, but I'd I've got a feeling he will not even stand in a leadership contest. And you see, this current job suits him and his experience and background. But leadership demands a range of qualities that um, he might not necessarily have and a a, a depth of appeal um, that he might not have. But you you raise something that quite a few people are talking about at Westminster, uh, the, the possibility of him being a leader. Well... Uh, We've been going on for quite some time, uh, and I think we better stop. So, as I say, (laughs) we could carry on, couldn't we, for the rest of the week on this one, um, and the rest of the year, probably. Um, But let's let's call a halt now, and so you can get on with bread making or running or walking across across a river. No, next to a river. None of us are claiming to be Christ-like quite yet. Hope to see you on Thursday at King's Place or on the live stream where there will be chance for questions and points raised and all the rest of it. And, uh, yeah, please do join the Patreon version as well if you want a bit more kind of rock and roll politics on a weekly basis. But the live thing is next on Thursday. Thank you so much for tuning in today. Have a good week as much as you can with all the bleak news around. And we'll get get together again very soon to try to make sense of it all. Thank you. Thank you.